Hello and welcome to the Underwater Technology Podcast from SUT, the Society for Underwater Technology. My name's Steve Hall, I'm the CEO, and each week we're bringing you interviews with our friends, guests and members from across the wide spectrum of underwater technology organisations across the world. Podcast 14, 25th of June 2020. My guest today is Keith Broughton. He's an underwriter specialising in marine systems. Basically, if you put it under the water and leave it there, Keith's your man. Before that, he was a Royal Navy mine clearance diver. He's a keen member of our London and Southern England branch. And in this talk, he'll speak about the work of the underwriter, the value that SUT membership has brought to him, how his time as a Navy officer helped, and also some advice for young people who are thinking of trying to get into the uh, specialist marine insurance industry. We'll also touch briefly on how marine policy and law has evolved in recent years uh, and how uh, things that were written back in 1906 and 1907 are still a relevance in today's offshore world. Over to you, Keith. My name's Keith Broughton. I'm currently a fellow of the Society for Underwater Technology and I trained, I went to university at Queen Mary College in London and studied marine and freshwater biology. Uh, but my interest in all things underwater started at the age of about six for me when we moved to uh, Honiara in Solomon Islands in the Western Pacific and I had this fantastic upbringing on a small island right in the middle of the Pacific, surrounded by these fabulous reefs, uh, where I got a real flavour for it. Um, it came as a great shock to me that I wasn't going to be able to live in Solomon Islands for the rest of my life, and therefore decided something with the sea was going to be important. So after boarding school, I went straight into the Royal Navy. Uh, and in the Royal Navy, they were very kind to say that I could go to university of my choice and study. So marine biology was a no-brainer. Uh, and then whilst in the Navy, I trained as a, a mine warfare insurance diving officer. I did that for, or was in the Navy for 10 years. And then my brother and I um, sailed to Australia on his 51-foot sailing boat um, with a Colty compressor and dived in some of the most extraordinary places on the planet. Uh, and then when I got back to England, I wasn't quite sure what to do. And I was very fortunate to meet a character called Simon Edwards, who was a bit of a legend in the Lloyd's insurance market um, and had not long set up a, an operation um, to insure underwater equipment, which uh, I joined him on the 4th of December, 99. And despite the fact that the company was sold to Beasley, which is a much larger organization, which used to support us, uh, at the Vath, and I'm still now insuring uh, largely subsea robotics, but anything that deliberately goes into the water. Brilliant. And th I guess that's where I would have first come across you, Keith, back in the, the early days of the National Oceanography Centre's autosub programme, when we, because not normally government insures its own systems, but I, I recall in the late 90s and early 2000s, we were unusually given permission to insure probably because we were so sure we were going to lose the thing and uh you, you but your, your company were an extraordinary group to deal with who were probably one of the first who really understood the uh the risks involved well we were 
I was very lucky because Simon decided, having had a career in hull and energy insurance, that he wanted to set out on his own. And he decided that the fastest growing area would be subsea robotics. And being a mem- Simon being a member of the Society for Underwater Technology had a, a wide knowledge and a wide inside knowledge. You know, Andy Millard and Gwyn Griffiths uh, and Dr. Miles Peverdy, who I went to uh, I went to university with his wife, and they were all part of the team. So it was uh, it was a great family to join in. And yes, at the time it was the Southampton Oceanography Centre that actually. That's right. Yes. Owned auto, auto sub, so they they were able to make um, make the choices to insure it. And it wasn't until um, they started to do some of the much longer penetrations under the sheet ice that Gwyn Griffiths and Simon sort of had a long discussion. And and what I loved working with Simon was he turned around to Gwyn and said, "Rather than us paying you paying us premium, why don't you start building another one? Because that's what I think the risk assessment suggests." And funnily enough. Uh, the following year, unfortunately, the sort of original auto sub did get a little stuck, and uh, son of auto sub came into its own, which was I thought a rather lovely thing for an insurer to say. Now, don't worry about insuring it; build yourself another one. <laughs> That's right, and and I remember at the time the 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 NERC leadership were very supportive of that view as well, because you know Gwyn, Gwyn's team were were some of the the first perhaps in the sort of more research academic community to start taking risks seriously and, uh, you know, beginning to get a good understanding of how likely they were to lose the vehicle in under ice operation. Absolutely. And, and what's fascinating is where Gwyn has worked with some of the other um, universities, and I'm going to mention the University of Tasmania here, um, that, ability to understand risk to manage it to use your insurers wisely to assist in that risk is is prevalent and i think we have to be very grateful to green griffiths for for his work in that area yes yes de- 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 definitely one of the the pioneers and and for our listeners Gwyn is still still very much involved in the life of the society so keith how is uh, something like the society for underwater technology useful in the work that you do these days well, we'll cover, from our point of view, we'll cover anything that, uh, in in theory, is mobile and underwater. And we cover um, oil and gas quite heavily, renewables, telecoms. We don't do a lot of fish farming, but it's within our gift to be able to underwrite it. We do technical development um, in, in all spheres, whether it's just scientific, whether it's for commercial purposes, or whether it's um, R&D for uh, anything that's going into the water. And the brilliant thing about the SUT is that out of all the spheres that we deal with, um, there is always somebody there who's got some sort of experience. So it's a great forum for talking. So there are definitely academics, which we know. And the way that academics use and develop their equipment is very different from the way that the oil and gas guys will. When you're working on an oil and gas patch, Procedures tend to be very much more formatted. There is a much more closely sort of regulated way of doing things. And understanding that and then understanding how a scientist will try and develop his program by putting something into the the water and how they develop their procedures, which are very different. Uh, And then again into telecoms, and we have all of these people within the society. It gives us a very clear um, 
idea of what they're going to do. So it makes actually judging the risk and being able to provide a, a relevant insurance product much easier. And you know, as you know, we have all types in the SCT, which is what's so fascinating and so enjoyable for uh, for me anyway. Okay, no, that's really good. And you, you've certainly been a, a very active part of our London and Southern England branch as well, haven't you, Keith? So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what the branch and what they do? Yeah, well, um, I, I didn't know anything about it until Brian Jones, who was nominated as the first chairman, came and said, right, you're working with me on this. Um, and I always think a press man works much better than a volunteer, despite what anyone says. Um, but it was decided a number of years ago that we needed to be um, much more branch orientated and that there was a lot of people working in and around the, certainly the London area and into Southampton uh, and down into the southwest. And we needed a structure to be able to coordinate all the activities and as well to have where we were working at the time, there was a Northern England branch, there was an Aberdeen branch, but there was no way to coordinate our activities and to coordinate training programs that were specific for the areas that we're looking at. And there are a large number of members in London uh, alone, not just in the financial industries, but in you know oil and gas. And you know, we have the, the technical consultants who all tend to, to work in and around that area. You've then got down the south coast, the fantastic universities, and into the southwest, which is a hotbed of renewables, and science, and studying, and and military, uh, going all the way down through the Dorset coast, the North Cornish coast, and we just needed to find a way to coordinate all of the activities and provide branch activities, and provide a, a centre for people with good ideas who wants to assist in the SUT to be able to get to us without overloading the. Um, sort of central staff that worked at headquarters. And I think we've been very successful. The, the Southwest branch is going gangbusters. Um, we have very good lunch and learns running in, um, through the city area, specifically to try and encourage people in non-technical people to use the SUT to find technical expertise. Uh, and Ian Knight runs some absolutely astonishingly good uh, evening sessions, which tend to gather the slightly more technical members and engineers from as far away as Woking um, and we need to keep developing that we need to make sure that the southwest we keep pushing that to to run as a, an autonomous and really you know potentially into Southampton as well because we've got to get into the universities to start encouraging the younger people the SUT plus uh, to join and society has huge relevance for them as it does and not just within their own spheres as SUT Plus and um, you know, younger guys getting into the industry, but with the fabulous experience that we have to be able to go and find people, to be able to help problem solve and, and network within in the sort of subsea arena. Okay, no, that's, that's really interesting. And so, so, so tell me, Keith, you, you served 10 years in, in the Navy, uh, and that was about mine, mine clearance officer and, and various other uh, duties. You, you you did a lot of diving at the time. So how have the things that you learned in during your naval service been of benefit to you in the in the day job today? We, there was uh, quite a lot because you know in order to get on to do the long uh, my more friend clearance diving officers course, which is a, a year, um, you have to train as a as a bridge watchkeeper as we would call it, a seaman officer, 
Um, and I had the privilege to serve on um, one of the carriers, Invincible, albeit very much as a trainee. Um, I served on a hydrographic ship. I served on a number of frigates. Uh, and then once I cl- uh, trained as a, uh, a clearance diver, I, I served on a mine hunter. In the terms of the day job, the most important thing is, is seamanship. Um, it's learning how to deploy pieces of equipment. Diving experience is fantastic. And being a, 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 at least a ticketed um, commercial diver, understanding how to conduct operations underwater using robotics, using sonars at a very high level and very precise level, understanding how a survey is conducted um, is all really important. But the most important thing about anything is you're working at sea. It's the operation and management of um, of vessels. And I think that is absolutely crucial. I think it's... Um, when you when you come to to run an operation or to an ensure an operation, what you really want is people who are going to go into it by not thinking about how they're going to get the technology through the water and get their results in the water. It's about having a complete view of the operation and and, and the seamanship and understanding how ships run and how to get things done is has for me been one of the most valuable things that I learned in the navy. Excellent, and. For our our members and listeners who've perhaps never tried to insure a product before, or never even considered, uh, you know, sp- speaking to people in the insurance sector before they undertake activities, uh, you know, you know, what what would you say in terms of you know the the value that working with a good insurer br- brings a product uh, brings the project? It- <laughs> It's, it's making sure that what you're actually buying is pertinent to the risk that you're actually going to take. Um, and there are a number of things that need to be thought about. Our primary product is a physical damage one. Um, and so that if you damage your equipment, we can get you back up and operating. And through some quite interesting developments in sort of marine law and marine insurance, um, there are there are all sorts of little bits that you need to think about. You need to think about the liability that you're going to create if you damage somebody else's equipment or if you lose your piece of equipment and it's floating around the ocean and therefore is potentially a danger. You need to know that you need to be very clear with your insurer what the point of the insurance is. Do you need to get back operating very quickly? Do you need to be able to reset gently and get your project back online uh, next time around? Will you need some help? Uh, or cost to go and um, you know investigate and recover your piece of equipment, depending on what you're doing. And so, the value of working with an insurer who's clear about his understanding of the environment, and more importantly, clear about what other elements that are likely to affect your insurance. It's it's very important to get somebody who's who's got a clear idea, um, and it makes it quite interesting because. Quite often, we will speak to people who have been put in charge of projects who've not had any sort of financial training or experience. Um, and so, in partnership with a good insurance broker who's you know got a great deal of empathy, we can then develop the right product for for the uh, for the guy who's got the piece of equipment. And you know, quite often somebody will say, "Well, I'm actually going to go and do this with this piece of equipment, a new one. Let's say it's a glider or." whatever it happens to be. And 
the other thing about having a good insurance is like you do know you're not allowed to do that there. <laughs> yes, yes. and other items it, it sounds like a good idea but you need to be a bit careful <laughs> mm, that's right and i think it's fair to say that the the legal and policy frameworks probably haven't entirely caught up with the rate of technological improvement have they keith no not really i mean um for our point of view it is because we write everything on a bespoke basis but you know even auvs is still um an interesting case because they don't really fit one area or the other um if you're a traditional marine insurer then the unit of insurance is a vessel um and there are all sorts of interesting definitions that um come into a vessel and the the pertinent piece of legislation in the uk is the 1906 marine insurance act uh and all her amendments which is an absolutely fabulous piece of um legislation and, and what we've been able to do is is manage that so that where we're operating off vessels um or working at least in the same environment of vessels is that We've been able to apply a lot of the elements of the 1906 Marine Insurance Act into our thought process and our policies so that at least everyone's on a level playing field from an insurance perspective when you're working in the same area. And I think that's incredibly important. But one of my first interactions with the SUT was to chair a committee that um, did an update on the, the operational and status of autonomous underwater vehicles. And... They can't really be considered as vessels as we look at it. Um, and at the time, ASV, the surface guys, were saying, well, we want to be on this committee, but you're not actually addressing what we need. And, and they were absolutely right, because we were looking at underwater vehicles. And then once you start operating permanently on the surface, um, there are actually considerably more rules and regulations. There's very little uh, regulation once you actually break surface and go below. So... It makes it very interesting, and we've had to use, um, I think, the common dog factor to apply um, an insurance act that was really based on sailing ships and steamships to move into an era where we're at highly technical, autonomous, underwater, uh, and, you know, guided robotics. But actually, with the right amount of common sense, it isn't that complicated to do to get a, an effective product. Yeah, and I suppose it's similar to the situation that, that we we're faced with in the, in the in the military space, isn't it, Keith? Where you have the the nineteen oh seven, I think, is Hague Convention Part Eight that that governs if you want to put a warhead on a torpedo or a sea mine, and that's probably the last piece of legislation that was internationally agreed that would potentially apply to armed autonomous underwater vehicles so after 113 years it's probably time we we try to bring that one up to date as well absolutely and and the other thing is you know we're working into a space now where a lot of warfare is is information gathering or information disruption as much as actually putting a kinetic problem in so you know the the scope of being able to use uh an autonomous underwater vehicle for either gathering information which is going to give you a uh, military advantage, strategic advantage, and or being able to disrupt services by using one. So it's not just having a warhead, it's a, a de- definition of warhead will need to be looked at quite carefully as well. 
Indeed, yeah, could like viral payloads for computer networks, you know, you know those kind of things as well, isn't it? Now, yes, absolutely, yeah, you know, fa- 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 fascinating world that we're that we're we're living in. And and Keith, you know, young people, you know, they've gone to university, they're thinking about what to do. If somebody listens to this, or they 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 speak to one of us, and they're thinking, gosh, you know, I've never really thought about insurance as a as a, as, a, as an option, you know how. How do people who are interested in the marine world and underwater technology, uh, you know, find their way into the insurance sector? Um, that's a very good question, and I wonder what whether it'll still be the same after the next few weeks when we we go back and Lloyd starts trading again. But um, there are a number of ways you can do it. Lloyd's, as an insurance market, which it is a corporation and a society. Um, it's worth going onto Lloyd's website and looking up recruiting um, opportunities because through there, they actually have a corporation that run it. They run a graduate uh, training program or until recently they did. And it's well worth looking up job opportunities through um, the Lloyd's website. The other thing to do is to look up um, through the Lloyd's website to look up the broking houses. Now, the broking houses are the agents who will find people who need insurance and then will come to people like uh, myself as underwriters who can develop it and through the Lloyd's website you should be able to find you will be able to find broking houses and the um, and the underwriting um, firms as well and through that there's a a general graduate scheme I think Lloyd still uh, and that will go through through the corporation and then you probably want to be looking at the different houses uh, and their websites, just to have a look at, see who does what, what interests you the most. And and I'm very happy to help anybody who wants to contact me to to uh, discuss how to do that. Okay. And we'll be putting Keith's uh, contact details on the show notes that you'll find on the on the podcast website. So, um, uh, you know, we, we're speaking very much, Keith, from, a, I suppose, a UK-centric point of view today you know for, for for people who are perhaps in the you know the united states or asia who, who are listening to this who are you know interested in insurance or interested in working in the field uh, alongside underwater technology are there pathways in, in other territories as well or is it very much a, a london focused industry no there's there's definitely um pathways in through other territories i mean certainly in singapore lloyd's has a trading platform there um, and also in Shanghai uh, and Beasley actually has offices in both and so contacting um, either the Lloyd's platform to look at recruitment and can, uh, is exactly the same there. The US is slightly different you need to look up uh, marine insurance firms and you know the, we know there's some outstanding underwriting organisations in the US we, we have a marine uh, branch at Beasley both in uh, Houston and in New York, um, and on top of that, yeah, there's some very fine broking houses. So, it, again, from that sort of recruitment point of view, you'd be wanting to go and and, and look up some of you know, the, the more international, uh, larger broking houses and and look at their opportunities. But it's very very good, um, very niche guys, especially when you get into the Houston area. Um, and it probably wouldn't do you any harm, especially in Houston, to contact the. Uh, SUT Houston or SUT Perth, if you're in Western Australia, um, to discuss because I know that there are insurance people on both sides who work 
uh, and and assist in in with the SUT operations. And the SUT is always a great door opener if you want to get into this sort of area. Indeed, indeed. And and finally, Keith, have you, have you got any good uh, uh, sort of anecdotes or stories you you you, you can tell us that, that that don't get you into any trouble or or, or libel cases? <laughs> There is one, and I use it quite a lot. Um, I hadn't been long working in um, underwater insurance, and uh, I had a, a lovely client in Western Australia, and um, the guy who ran it was very much an old uh, sat diver. He was a fabulous character, very, very... Um, he was a very fiery man. Um, and we were having lunch at a rather nice restaurant, um, having steak and and he's looking at me and I was like what's wrong you, you really want to tell me a story don't you he goes well you were a diver and I was albeit you know I have commercial qualifications but I was very much a navy clearance diver rather than a full-on com- commercial type and he goes I've just been summoned to a big client in uh, Indonesia and I said yeah and he goes you know all about technical sport diving, you know, diving down with all your cylinders and everything. I was like, yeah. You know, we own all these SAT systems, SAT diving systems. I went, yeah, sure. You know, what's the problem? He goes, well, I had to go and listen to a lecture from this guy saying, we can save you, the client, a huge amount of money because you don't need a dive support ship. We can dive to 100 metres. You know, we can revolution the way that diving's done. And I said, well, what did you say to them, Steve? He goes, can any of you weld? <laughs> and the, the long answer to the story of that is, you can't really weld if you're using technical sport diving equipment. And actually, when we're looking at things and we insure them, it's not the method of, for me as a diver. Diving is a purely a method of transport. It's getting a tool to the uh, seabed to work. And as Steve said, none of them could weld. And you can't weld below 50 metres with any of that sort of equipment they thinking about so it's highly entertaining and it's something i've always used it's right tool for the right job brilliant okay thanks very much keith it's been great hearing from you and uh, any of our members particularly the ones involved in the uh, london southern england branch will uh, very quickly get to meet keith if they start coming along to any of our events either real or virtual uh, any point this year and uh, onwards into the future thanks very much Thank you, Keith, for informing us, educating us and entertaining us about the world of underwriting. Thanks to everybody who's contributed material to the SUT podcast so far. Please get in touch with me, steve.hall at sut.org, if you'd like to be interviewed for a future episode. Find out more about SUT at sut.org. My thanks to Emily Boddy for writing and performing the SUT theme music and creating the SUT podcast artwork more from us next week thanks for now goodbye